Washington, D.C. This is On the Ground. I don't want that kind of insurrection. I don't want those kind of people taking over the government, taking over my life. Voting rights is super important. Nobody would be here if it weren't for voting. So, and to make it possible for everybody to vote, whether it's a day off on voting days or mail-in ballots, you know, whatever it takes to get the vote. I think one of the main issues we're going to have to guard against are these cockamamie notions about democracy being deeply entrenched in the United States, and somehow that'll be the guardrail that prevents fascism from coming to power. As noted, even law professors at Ivy League law schools are now beginning to debunk that nonsense. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, on the one-year anniversary of January 6th, D.C. is still wrestling with the meaning and aftermath of that day when a violent mob attacked the U.S. Capitol as Donald Trump tried to decertify Joe Biden's win in the 2020 presidential election. Speaking Thursday, Biden described Trump as a sore loser and said that Trump put a knife to the throat of the country by continuing to tell the lie that the election was stolen from him, placing his ego above the welfare of the country. For the first time in our history, a president had not just lost an election, he tried to prevent the peaceful transfer of power as a violent mob breached the Capitol. But they failed. They failed. And on this day of remembrance, we must make sure that such attack never, never happens again. While there were vigils here and around the country denouncing the riots, there were also events like the one at the state capitol in Missouri, which was titled, How the Election of 2020 Was Stolen. You could say that one lasting meaning of January 6th is that the big lie of 2020 by Republicans has further destroyed Americans' faith in the integrity of elections, and more so after the four-year lie by Democrats to delegitimize Trump's presidency with the Russiagate hoax. With these and other obvious examples, both political parties are cannibalizing the democracy that members of both parties say they want to save. We'll have more on January 6th after headlines with voices from the Capitol and a discussion between activists Brian Becker and historian Gerald Horn. January 6th was also a reminder of January 5th, 2021, when Georgia voters stunned the establishment by sending two Democratic senators, one Jewish, one Black, to Washington, giving Democrats a slim majority in the Senate, with Vice President Kamala Harris available to break any 50-50 tie. And so on this anniversary, there was frustration expressed by Wanda Mosley of Black Voters Matter at a vigil Thursday that the slim majority has not been able to pass major legislation promised to address the climate crisis, police reform, and especially voting rights. Here we are, 366 days later, wondering 
we demand and we will not settle for anything less than passage of the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Passage of the Freedom to Vote Act. President Biden, when you were a candidate, you said you would fight like hell for voting rights. When will that start? When will you fight like hell for my right to vote? Do you understand that we had people die during the runoff election? That at one point, the city of Albany, Georgia, per capita, had the third highest death rate of COVID, not in the state of Georgia, not in America, but in the world. And yet still, those people came out, knocked on doors, made phone calls. We lost a dear friend and sister of ours, Pinky Modesti, from COVID. We saw her at the beginning of December, and she did not make it to see the results of January 5th. So when we say stop compromising, stop negotiating, stop discussing and meeting to talk about protecting the right to vote, do something! Time is up. The calendar has changed to a new year. We are demanding that you do something now. Senator Schumer, may I remind you, sir, that you carry the title of leader because of black voters in Georgia. So the next time you find yourself in peril and you call on black voters, don't be surprised when we don't answer. Thank you. Now, speaking of voting rights in Georgia, on December 30th, the American Civil Liberties Union, along with a number of individuals and groups like the 6th District of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, filed a lawsuit against Georgia's Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to keep a series of newly drawn election district maps from being implemented because these new maps violate the 1965 Voting Rights Act. The lawsuit says, quote, Georgia is one of the fastest growing states in the nation, and that growth has been driven entirely by black Georgians and other Georgians of color. Over the last decade, Georgia's black population grew by 16%, while the population of white Georgians fell during the same period. Yet the new legislative maps for Georgia's General Assembly do not account for the growth of Georgia's black population. Rather, the new maps systematically minimize the political power of black Georgians in violation of federal law. Now, crowds that gathered in D.C. in sub-freezing temperatures to mark the anniversary of January 6th were advised to wear masks as the Omicron variant has made D.C. a poster child for rising case numbers, hospitalizations, and for the insufficient testing that has long dogged the entire U.S. since the start of the pandemic. In addition to being behind in supplying these tests, the Biden administration is still taking heat because of recent CDC guidelines that reduce the number of days a COVID-positive person with no symptoms must stay in isolation. The new rule is seen by many critics as putting corporate profits before the health of workers and the community. And finally, in culture and media, author Marion Williamson spoke this week about student debt and the military budget. Benjamin Zinovich has more. The connections between the military-industrial complex and the student debt crisis was the subject of the Code Pink Congress speaker series on Tuesday, January 4th, featuring political activist and author Marianne Williamson. 
Williamson originally received reclaim as Oprah Winfrey's spiritual advisor in the 1990s and ran for president in the crowded Democratic primary in 2020. She said that an effective political movement will need to be independent of the Democrats or Republicans. I am overthinking if we just elect a Democrat, that's going to fix it. Because we're realizing even if you do elect the Democrat, you're still not getting your minimum wage lifted. You're still not getting any kind of cut or even serious conversation about militarism in our society. And they think we're so, you look at the Afghanistan, the end of the Afghanistan war, but then the budget didn't go down. The budget went up. Uh, even with the Democratic president, we're not talking about cancellation of the college loan debt. Even with a Democratic president, you know, he could, if he wished to, expand Medicare tonight. If he wished to, he could free Julian Assange tonight. If he wished to, uh, he could work seriously for that $15 an hour minimum wage. If he wished to, uh, he could cancel the, the debt, et cetera. We have to realize that the system is so saturated by the undue influence of these corporate forces. We need to have a nonviolent revolutionary spirit at this point. Williamson is hopeful for the fate of society saying that while progressive forces are not yet in places of power at large, there is a mass waking up within the country to what needs to be done. For On the Ground, this is Benjamin Zinovich. Code Pink is among the groups sponsoring a protest at the White House on Tuesday, January 11th at noon to mark 20 years since the opening of the Guantanamo Bay Detention Center. Since its opening, 780 men have been detained there, all Muslim, Today, 39 of these men remain. Most have never been charged with a crime, and 13 have been cleared for transfer, but are still imprisoned there. And those are headlines and happenings. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. Pants poster said, We going ultra. Yeah. We going ultra black. I got a toast to that. We don't fold the crack. We going. Occasion we rose to that. Fuck on postal. We going ultra black. Watching the global change. Hopping the coldest range. Hip boy on the beat. This poster slap. We going ultra black. We going. We going. Rhythm and blues, pop, rock, soul to jazz, till my toes attack. How I look being told, I'm not supposed to brag. Nobody fault, I tell the truth, I know what's facts. We ultra black, grace tone, skin tone, but multi that. Multiple colors, we come in all shades, mocha black. Except where I'm at and I fight me on it. Emotional stares like I might be wanted. Pitch black like the night, I'm mocha black. Said for the sun, reruns, jokes are black. Oh yes, oh yes, God bless success. We going ultra black, like the S is fast. Hawk with a mask on, the freshest breath. African black soap, caress the flesh. Super fly the Mac, sit and fly in the lack. Take the boat on the water, history talk. I'm here at the Capitol on uh, January 6th, the one year anniversary of the <laughs> insurrection at the Capitol. And uh, I think that they're getting ready to start the vigil here on the east side of the Capitol. And I'm just going to talk to a few people about why they came out. Uh, it's a smattering of crowds, more police than crowd. But anyway, I'm going to try to talk to a few people about why they came out. So uh, tell me your name and why you came out tonight. My name is Abby, and I moved here a year ago, five days before the insurrection. Mm. And I came out because 
not because of the insurrection so much as a stand-up for democracy. Mm-hmm. And the groups that I follow, League of Women Voters, Democracy for America, I just feel really strongly about it <clears throat> and want to be here in body to emphasize that that's important. So where did you move from? Vermont. Oh, Okay. So that's one of our favorite senators' uh, home state. So, you know, during this past year, there have been so many things that happened where we've been trying to move forward in the agenda, you know, past January 6th of last year. How do you feel about the last year since then and and what they've been able to get done, I guess, progressives or Democrats or whatever you want to call the left here? I'm not as well-versed as I could be. I do know that the administration that came in didn't create all the problems that happened before and aren't going to solve all the problems just because they got voted in. Um, The divisiveness is choking us for sure. And I really believe in the progressive agenda. I also believe in compromise and I feel that's being tried by some people and other people who are making a stand for popularity reasons. And it's getting some of the work done, but, you know, voting rights is super important. Nobody would be here if it weren't for voting. So that seems core to me. And to make it possible for everybody to vote, whether it's a day off on voting days or mail-in ballots, you know, whatever it takes to get the vote. Why are we afraid of it? Right, right. So. Okay. Thank you so much. Now um, I've run into, you know, activists, you know, known, you know, throughout D.C. in progressive circles. Uh, Linda Leakes, she runs a very popular listserv, just sending out information to everybody. And so, Linda, tell me, you know, why you came out tonight. Well, I came out as um, to see what was going on, because I was out here when it happened last year. Last January 6th, I was out here, and I just wanted to see what was, how it was going on the quote-unquote anniversary mm-hmm. <laughs> of it. And um, there's nowhere close to what it was when last, you know, last year when it happened. Mm-hmm. There's nowhere close. There were thousands and thousands of people from right. all over the country. Right. who were out here. So I just came to uh, see what was going on. So yeah. that's why. Well, you know, January 6, 2021 is seen as an uh, insurrection, an attempted coup, not necessarily by the people who stormed the Capitol, but the people who kind of planned that day. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what is your feeling and, you know, about that day and what's happened since then? Well, I am... I do appreciate the our capital uh, workers, patrollers, and police who stopped it from happening. I am not interested in being involved in a that kind of coup d'état. <laughs> coup d'état, you know. I'm not. I don't want that. I want us to have democracy, even though it takes a lot of work and a lot of involvement to have 
democracy. But that's what I pre- that's what I want. I don't want that kind of insurrection. I don't want the, those kind of people taking over the government, mm-hmm. taking over my life. I was at the White House when they came through uh, several times as well with um, their Trump banner and with their uh, demanding that they be in charge. So that's why I have to come out. I don't have any power other than bringing my body out, my soul out, and my voice Mm-hmm. It's the only power that I have at this time. Mm-hmm. And I have to share that because I do not want to have to live under that kind of <laughs> lifestyle. Now, when you said that the White House, were you talking about before January 6th when we had the Proud Boys kind of rampaging through the city? What happened then? What did you see? Oh, yes, that's what I'm talking about. Yes, when they, they came through, um, they came uh, and went down to, what, the Asbury Church, I think it is. But uh, there was a, a counter demonstration at the White House mm-hmm. as they were coming through. So I was at the counter demonstration. And that's what I have to do, if I can, is have my body out there saying, no, this is not democracy. Mm-hmm. This is not what we want to happen under democracy. Mm-hmm. You will not make these kind of <laughs> dealings and we not say anything. Right, right. We're not being, if right. that makes sense. Right, no, no. So what do you want see happening now? What do you want to happen now? There's a January 6th investigation by the House. Uh, there's uh, Merrick Garland just spoke uh, yesterday saying that he's conducting an investigation that nobody's above the law. What do you think should happen now? I think they should go to jail. Uh, I think those who broke the law should uh, have to pay for it. That's what happens to people of African descent. That's what happened to other people. If we break the law just a little tiny bit, we have to pay for it. So these folks that came in and uh, bombed um, the uh, Capitol and, and, and their other organizing right this minute to take control over this country and the government, I think uh, they have to know that nobody's going to sit back and just watch them do that. Now, do you mean the people who just came to the Capitol or the people who were planning behind the scenes and, you know, wanting Pence to, you know, not certify the election and the control room at the Willard Hotel and all of that? How about those people? Or Trump? (laughs) Well, I think if they don't all have meetings in the same place, they're still moving forward Mm -hmm. under the same kind of organizing that they're in. So I I think that it it, it got to. Now, let me tell you one one good thing Mm -hmm. (laughs) about these criminals. When they were put into the D.C. jail, Mm -hmm. they did raise the issue about the terrible condition of the D.C. jail. Right, right. So I can send them one penny for that. <laughs> right, right. You know, yeah, that was a good thing because I've, I've been out there fighting, trying to get 
some justice in D.C. Uh, jail. So I've been over there at that jail, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, rooting for the people who was who have been put in those unfairly put in those jails, and the, and so it's been a it's been a long, 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 long fight to get it. Um, and so when these folks go down there and they raise the issue about the terrible condition, mm -hmm. so I can send them a penny <laughs> for I can send them one penny for that. Okay. All right. All right. So that was Linda Leakes. Thank you. Thanks, Linda. Thank you. Tell me your name and why you came out tonight. My name's Annie, and I came out with my neighbors and friends from my church to honor the U.S. Capitol Police and the devastation that occurred a year ago. We have to make sure that people speak truth to power about what happened and never forget so it doesn't repeat. The event that I was attending was called the Vigil for Democracy. And do you feel that the events of a year ago really posed a threat to the country's democracy? Absolutely. There's no question in my mind. It was just tragic what happened. And the reverberations today with everyone who works in the Capitol, the neighbors, us who live around it, are as traumatic today as they were a year ago. Yeah, a lot of people probably don't know what people on Capitol Hill experienced last year. What did people experience because of the riots? It was hell on earth. It was just the worst day that any of us had had since 9-11, which is, a, I hate to even make a comparison. And the fact that our Capitol was, you know, wrapped for months and months and months like a prison and the fact that we had to have thousands of National Guards men and women away from their homes to protect the Capitol, it was just shocking. What do you want to see happen now? There are investigations going on. What would you like to see happen like going forward? I see accountability from the bottom to the top on what happened. I would like to see measures to ensure that the right to vote and to have a free and fair vote as it was in 2020, it remains protected. Voices on the Ground, on thegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. On the Ground's geopolitical analyst, Gerald Horn, the Morris Professor of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston, put January 6th in a historical perspective in a conversation this week on the socialist program with Brian Becker. This is a portion of their talk. We're witnessing the consolidation of a far-right movement. And, you know, my friend, our friend, Randy Credico, the comedian, said, there's a fine line between the right, the far-right, and the Third Reich. And I think he's not too wrong about that. Anyway, let's get started. Well, with regard to the phenomenon that you've just mentioned, I think it's important to ground this in the history of the United States of America. If you look at the 19th century, which you may recall Adolf Hitler himself said that he was patterning what he was trying to do in Eastern Europe after what the settlers had done in North America. And that particular movement in North America was not just a movement from above, spearheaded by Andrew Jackson, Mr. Trump's favorite president. His picture was on the wall in the Oval Office, recall. But if you look at the Trail of Tears, circa 1830, 
when the indigenous population of the Southeast quadrant of North America were expropriated, that did not just come from above, it came from below. And so I think that what happened with regard to the Chamber of Commerce, the Business Roundtable, perhaps even some leaders of the Republican Party, is that they got ahead of their base and the basis reeled them back in. And right now we're at a very perilous moment. Let me point your listeners to an op-ed that appeared in the Toronto Globe and Mail just a few days ago by a member of the Canadian elite who suggested that Ottawa begin to prepare for a flood of U.S. refugees following a coup of November 2024, the date of the next presidential election. In that regard, recall that just a few days ago in the Washington Post, three leading U.S. generals had an op-ed warning about the same thing and that the military would split on a left-right axis. And we all know that Pentagon Chief Lloyd Austin has been seeking, in his estimation, to rout what he calls extremists who have infested the U.S. military. And what we need to see and what we need to understand, and this is one of the failures, I'm afraid to say, of some of our friends on the left, is that if you understand settler colonialism, and that's the kind of project we have here in North America, where you have an invasion by European settlers hundreds of years ago, and then unite across class lines in order to mutually feast on the land of the Native Americans, and then mutually exploit, in many instances, the free labor of African slaves, well, what's happened is that the United States has been forced to move away from that kind of system. Some of our liberals would say that this is the inevitable result of a certain kind of teleology, so to speak, that this is the way things work. You move away from the right. I would argue that global events such as the Haitian Revolution, the rise of British abolitionism, that caused the United States to move away from slavery. In the 20th century, you see the rise of a socialist camp and Washington's inability to appeal to developing nations in Africa and Latin America in particular, as long as peoples of color were being treated so atrociously. And so you have a grudging and halting retreat from Jim Crow. But now, as they see it, international pressure has lessened. And so this is taking place in the context of an ever stiffer challenge from the People's Republic of China, which bids fair to leave the United States and U.S. imperialism sprawling in the dust, which is inducing even more hysteria. And I should also add in this context, of course, we could spend the next 40 minutes fact-checking Mr. Trump, but I happen to have my notes just to my left with regard to the weapons that the insurrectionists brought to Washington in January. And it includes baseball bats, handcuffs, construction of gallows, firearms, napalm, wireless communication, semaphore flags, hand signals, gas masks, bear spray, shields, pepper spray, fireworks, climbing gear. Mr. Trump, in the statement you just referenced, said that this was an unarmed protest. Well, this is one of the best armed, unarmed protests I've ever witnessed. And let me reiterate, before I turn the microphone back to you, that we're not out of the woods yet by any estimation. Now, history shows that failed coups oftentimes are followed by successful coups. 
And given the constellation of forces in the United States of America, where you still have a substantial percentage of the Republican Party base, which basically is the majority of the settler population, continue to indulge in the big lie about a stolen election with a significant percentage saying that violence would be justifiable in order to effectuate their goals, I dare say that we have rocky times ahead. Well, I agree with you about the Republican base. I'm not sure in terms of the characterization about the entire population or even the majority of the population. When you, I'm looking carefully at the statistics provided by the Poor People's Campaign and some of those who are engaged right now in mass mobilizations. One out of every two Americans is living either in or near poverty. In terms of the way the vote played out in 2020, the number of low-income families, that is families with an income of less than 50,000, the vote was about 55% for Biden, 43% for Trump. And then there is, I think, very significant part of the demarcation in society, which is between urban America and 83% of the people in the country live in cities, and then rural or small-town America. And it's not 100%, but it's a very sharp divide. And if you look at where the mobilizations are taking place, on the right and the left, they parallel this kind of urban, big city, and small city or rural separation. And it seems to me that what's really happened is that the racist movement, the white supremacist movement, which had been pushed back as a consequence of the civil rights revolution, the sweeping you know, righteous rebellion of black people and millions of other people who were also standing with the black community, the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act in 1965, et cetera, et cetera, that that political momentum created a new sort of political constellation. And the racists were not allowed to openly be racist. They had to conceal their racism, or certainly it was considered a taboo. And then you have Donald Trump coming in, running as a Republican in 2016, and that entire narrative shifted where Trump is signaling to the white racist and white supremacist forces in society, this is our time. We're going to make America great again, as he put it. And that's a signal to them, not a very veiled signal. And so you have the, the resurrection of an openly racist or nearly openly racist movement. It's largely rejected, I think, by even the white working class and young populations in urban areas and in some of the small towns, too. I mean, I was very engaged in the support and organizing for the massive uprising against racism after the killing of George Floyd. That movement swept big cities and smaller cities. After the election, that movement receded. That movement ebbed, as you know, frequently happens in mass movements. And after the election of Biden or Trump's efforts to say this was a stolen election, the left or the progressive forces have lost momentum and then sort of lined up, hoping, hoping, hoping that something good would come from the Biden administration, while the political 
momentum in the street has shifted to the right. And when you look at fascism, there is the element of what's going on at the base among certain parts of the population. I was looking at some of the demographics of who were the people on January 6th. Interestingly, many, many small shop owners. Of course, it took some amount of money to get to Washington in the middle of a work week on a Wednesday. And also, 52% of those arrested were from blue counties, counties that had voted for Biden, meaning these were the white racist elements in their society who were upset that there was a growing Latino population or that there was black empowerment. So... I think that we're in a tug of war, and I think that while the right wing has the momentum, certainly the social basis for struggle to defeat them does exist, although I have to say, I think waiting for the Democrats to do the right thing won't be a road to success. Well, first of all, with regard to the figures, for example, the 5543 figure, oftentimes when those kinds of figures are deracialized that can be misleading. It's just like talking about women voting in the majority for Trump, but that's heavily dependent upon black women voting against him uh, nine to one and Euro-American women voting in favor of him 55 to 45. And with regard to the ebb and flow of movements and why that often happens, obviously it goes back to the Red Scare. You know, I wrote an entire book about the Civil Rights Congress, which was a successor of the International Labor Defense, which spearheaded the Scottsboro defense of the 1930s, which was an opening blow against Jim Crow, an internationalized question. And it fell victim to the Red Scare. There hasn't been a successful attempt to build a movement with that breadth and depth since then. And so inevitably, you have ebb and flow of these political resistance movements and I should also say that with regard to the Red Scare itself, the liberals oftentimes were in the vanguard. And even today, many of our liberal friends still shun forces on the left, even though they read the Toronto Globe and Mail, just like I do, and know that these forces are coming for them. Uh, they have been trained so assiduously that they can't even really figure out what their uh, self-interests were at rest. With regard to January 6th, it was a typical multi-class formation. There were shopkeepers, there were business owners, there were military veterans, there were police officers, there were wage workers, of course, almost all of whom were descendants of the original settler class. That's what we should not obscure, because when you talk about the class question, you not only talk about the relationship of these folks to the means of production, but you also have to talk about their social categorization, and that is to say in terms of seeing some sort of a replay of settler colonialism. And I think it's also important to point out that there were two states that supplied a disproportionate percentage of those who were detained on January 6th. One was Florida, southern state, former slave state. The other was Texas former Southern state, enslaved state. And with regard to Texas, it's not only that it was perhaps the most important Confederate state, the least damaged by the U.S. Civil War, it also had the most ferocious attacks against the indigenous population. That is to say, a conscious policy of extermination, which, as noted, uh, Adolf Hitler decided to emulate. 
So I think it's very important to recognize the depth and profundity of this moment and to try not to obscure the poisonous aspects of what's going on as we speak. Well taken, well taken. I want to go back to January 6th itself. Let's just talk about what actually happened and why it happened. You know, the January 6th of a year ago. Donald Trump summoned the masses of his supporters to Washington, D.C. on January 6th for a large rally to take place at the Ellipse, which is technically the front door of the White House. And he was there speaking. Rudy Giuliani, the racist mayor of New York, was speaking, former mayor. They had the whole entourage speaking to the masses. There was only one reason they brought those people to Washington on January 6th, in the middle of the work week, at noon. And that was because two hours later, at the Congress, 17 or 18 blocks east of the White House, the Congress of the United States was scheduled to certify the election outcome. Now, the election was very clearly a popular win for Joe Biden, 7 million plus votes over Trump, just as Hillary Clinton had three and a half million more than Trump in 2016. But because the elections in the United States are determined based on that old slave-based system of the Electoral College, it had to be certified, not based on popular vote, but based on the Electoral College vote. And it had been certified on December 14th, and Congress ceremonially had to recertify or reaffirm that certification on January 6th. And the plan was to march on the Capitol at the same time that Trump was putting enormous pressure on Mike Pence, who was, as vice president, the president of the U.S. Senate, to decertify or at least to raise the possibility of the recount of votes in six states. That was the plan. There's no other plan. They were coming there to stop the election. And we know that Trump had you know, called the secretary of state of Georgia and said, recount, give me the votes I need. He told his attorney general after William Barr resigned, just call the election corrupt. I'll take care of the rest, he said. Leave the rest to me. I mean, it was clear that Trump was intending to overturn the election outcome. Now, in American politics, I mean, in global politics with America at the center of global politics in the sense of being the dominant empire, the idea of stability as a form of governance is key to American imperialism. Two ruling class parties, if one loses, the other takes its place. You know, the peaceful transfer of power shows the world that it's a stable system. Maybe unfair here or there, maybe whatever, but it's stable. And thus it has a legitimacy. So for Trump to obviously try to decertify the election and prevent the peaceful transfer of power, in this case using a large mob of people, that's a cardinal rule that was broken in American imperialist politics, and thus it was a cardinal sin. With that said, Gerald, I'm looking at Politico, and here's this report, and I want to get your comments about and your explanation of how this could possibly happen. Again, remembering, this is Trump breaking the cardinal rule about you know, maintaining the stability or the image of stability. 
Hundreds of law enforcement officials were prepped early for potential January 6th violence. In addition to their January 4th call, they had a conference call with 300 law enforcement officers two days before. They even had a hashtag to share information on the FBI's private communication service, hashtag CERT Unrest 2021, certain unrest 2021. They knew it was coming. And yet only one fifth of the police force at the Capitol Police out of 3,500 Capitol Police officers who have one, one mission, which is to protect the Capitol building, only one fifth of them were on duty. They weren't in riot gear. The National Guard was not called out. You are listening to a conversation between activist Brian Becker and Professor Gerald Horn about January 6th. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. Now back to the conversation. Anyway, this could not have taken place and would not have taken place if it was leftists or black protesters or Latino protesters. Anyway, what accounts for this sort of placid, apathetic action by the police, by the state, given the importance of the peaceful transfer of power to America's image? Well, I think your lead-in revealed and exposed the answer. That is to say, the demographic composition of the insurrectionists who were seen and perceived as one of us, quote-unquote, us being the settler class, the Euro-American middle class and working class, for example, and therefore no alarm bells go off. It's also interesting if you start looking at the granular detail to point out the suspicious nature of the National Guard not being dispatched to the Capitol, not only from the district, but even Governor Hogan in Maryland wanted to send the National Guard, and he faced stumbling blocks there too. I take it that the Benny Thompson Committee, which is now investigating, will go into this in terms of going back to January 6th. I think it was not only designed to prevent the peaceful transfer of power, I think liquidation was in mind as well. I don't think that a gallows was formed on the grounds of the Capitol by accident. I don't think that the chant of hang Mike Pence was an accidental chant. I took careful note of Congressman James Clyburn of the Congressional Black Caucus, who suggested that the invaders of the Capitol did not go to his office where his name was on the door. They went to his hideaway, which does not have his name on the door, looking for him that Congresswoman Presley of Boston, also the Black Caucus, talked about how panic buttons were stripped out of her office somehow mysteriously before this insurrection took place. I think, as far as I can tell, the Congressman Thompson's committee is zeroing in on complicity on the part of members of Congress, including Paul Garsar, who, as you know, only recently put out this graphic where he was killing Congresswoman AOC of Queens. And then, of course, there's Mo Brooks of Alabama, a Jim Jordan of Ohio, a Scott Perry of Pennsylvania. To a certain extent, this was an inside job 
and an outside job. And I hope and I trust that at least we can get the facts on the table before November 2022. Yeah, definitely an inside job. And we don't know how high up it went. I mean, there was that extraordinary letter that was sent on January 12th, 2021, by all eight generals who make up the Joint Chiefs of Staff to every member of the 1.3 million member U.S. military that told the members what happened was a violation of the Constitution. It was unlawful. It was seditious. Those were the words used by the, the military. And obviously, they would not have done that if they weren't alarmed about the intervention of military forces in the political process. There's a big reminder there. It's illegal for you, for us, for the military to intervene. But clearly, that had to be happening. And that had to account for one of the reasons that only one-fifth of the Capitol Police Department was on duty that day and not in riot gear. That's not the rank and file deciding that. That's high up. And we don't know and we won't know yet how far and how wide this operation actually went. Peter Navarro in the Rolling Stone speculates that if there hadn't been the violence inside the Capitol, they would have succeeded with the other members of the Republican Party and pressuring Pence to actually decertify or not certify. Let's put it this way, not certify the election outcome in six of the states, sending them back to the states and then hoping that Republican state legislators would do their magic in terms of sort of decertifying or recounting or something that to stop the election. It seems to me, Gerald, as we start to come to the close here, that the specter of fascism is, as you said, there's got a historical continuity in terms of the history of racism and white supremacy in the United States. There's a, a feature of this, a deep strain of this that's rooted even when the United States was technically a democracy. It's got this fascistic element. And then there's the other part of the rise of fascism, which is conjunctural, which is not the same or simply linked to the history. We're looking at the, the imagery of the KKK marching down the streets of Washington, D.C., 20,000 of them during the Woodrow Wilson administration. And Wilson came in, as you well know, and resegregated or fired fired most of the black federal workers or resegregated the couple departments that weren't successful at firing all the black workers. So there's this strain, this profound, deep, dominating strain of racism in American capitalism. And then we have the conjunctural element where fascism takes power in the name of uh, extra-legal or anti-democratic or certainly the suppression of democracy as we know it at certain moments when the capitalist class is in crisis. Now, you mentioned in Germany and Italy, the unresolved class struggle where the left was strong enough to keep fighting but not strong enough to take power. Ultimately, the bourgeoisie makes a deal with the fascists to regiment, meaning to destroy the left. Hitler didn't come to power through a Nazi revolution or a Nazi insurrection. The keys to the castle were given to him by the right center politicians. 
And then, and only then, are the fascists able to, by wielding state power, do their thing. And of course, we know the genocide and the war, World War II that follows. Almost 100 million people die. But in the United States, if there is a feeling, not that the left is about to take power or that the left is a dire threat, which was the case in Italy and Germany, but that the wheels are coming off, that the system of governance for the empire is losing legitimacy and sort of frantic or extreme elements start to be considered, I could easily see big parts of the American ruling class opting for that sort of fascist dictatorship. Certainly there was a very pro-Nazi sentiment in the U.S. ruling class in the 1930s prior to World War II. And for us as progressive people and for leftists who know what fascism is or even what bourgeois democracy with its fascistic tendencies is, that there is a compelling need for a united front against fascism. And it can't be simply a defensive fight against fascism. It has to also have a positive agenda for social change to meet the unmet needs of the population so as to rally a population, you know, half of which is now living, in spite of the fact it's the richest country in the world, living in or near poverty. It seems to me that we can't wait for the Democrats. We can't be waiting for Joe Biden. It's not that all the Democrats, we can't look for alliances with some forces of the left, but we have to be able to create a massive movement. And we could see last summer, not so long ago, 18 months ago, that there is also the material basis for the rise of a new movement. It did ebb, but it did also exist. And you look at the Bernie Sanders movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, the Occupy movement. If we look at the last 10 years, we shouldn't, you know, I don't want our audience to be simply hand-wringing and thinking all is lost when the battle, the final battles, haven't yet been fought. Indeed, all is not lost by a long shot. I think we have more than one arrow in our quiver, not least of which is that I think there is considerable sympathy overseas with regard to our movement here because we share the same foe. I've spent time in the last 45 minutes talking about the transatlantic relationship. And there, as already noted, there is considerable dearth of sympathy towards Washington. Magnify that the closer you get to the equator, for example, the closer you get to Latin America or Africa or Southeast Asia, for example. That is one of our clearest and most vibrant advantages. I should also say that in terms of an analysis, once again, to return to the 19th century, the idea in the nascent Republican Party, which only had arisen in the 1850s and was the party of anti-slavery, to a certain degree, the party of abolition, the two should not be confused, was that the nation would have difficulty existing half slave and half free. So what happens, you have a civil war and the nation emerges as half free, half proto-fascist, because that was followed by an exterminationist campaign against the indigenous population. It was followed by a crude reactionary upsurge by the armed wing of the Democratic Party known as the Ku Klux Klan, aimed at depriving black people of the right to vote of ousting Black people from office, et cetera. 
And what was interesting about that period, both the slave period and the post-slave period, is that those in the settler class who were not willing to accept the status quo oftentimes were liquidated themselves. And I think what we have to impress upon our centrist friends, our liberal friends, is that they should be very careful that they should be joining with the left and this united front against fascism because they're coming for them too. As a matter of fact, when I read that article in the Toronto Globe and Mail about the Canada preparing for a flood of U.S. refugees, although I may be mistaken, my first impulse was to think, well, <laughs> in terms of people fleeing, they'll come for the liberals first before they come for me. So maybe I'll have a few weeks <laughs> lead time. I'm not so sure, but the point is not that they're just coming from me. They're coming for these liberals and centrists as well, and they need to realize that. And they need to realize that these attacks upon electoral workers who basically lubricate the electoral machinery, which is a Republican Party goal, the attack upon the secretaries of state in the various states who administer elections, they're trying to rig the game. They're trying to rig the game so that all of these dire, ghoulish, ghastly prognostications that we hope will not come to pass will, in fact, will come to pass. And if there is one commonality that I see with regard to fascism, be it in Europe or Chile or perhaps even in the United States, is that the liberals and centrists in all of these countries, they tend to underestimate the strength of the right, for example. I happened to be in Chile just before September 1973 and was constantly assured and reassured by liberal friends that democracy was deeply entrenched in Chile and that one did not have to worry about any sort of fascist coup. About two or three weeks after I departed on September 11, 1973, of course, you had the Pinochet coup. I think one of the main issues we're going to have to guard against are these cockamamie notions about democracy being deeply entrenched in the United States, and somehow that'll be the guardrail that prevents fascism from coming to power. As noted, even law professors at Ivy League law schools are now beginning to debunk that nonsense, and so it's well past time for others to join with them. And on the grounds, geopolitical analyst Gerald Horn will have the last word on today's show. He was speaking on the socialist program with Brian Becker, who is also a friend of the show and national organizer for the Answer Coalition, which stands for Act Now to Stop War and End Racism. At our website, onthegroundshow.org, you can check out all of our current and past shows, contact us and support us. You can also let us know you like the show on Facebook, Twitter, on patreon.com at On The Ground Show. Our podcast is On The Ground with Esther Averam, and you can subscribe to it on all your podcast platforms. The podcast, our social media pages, and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says On The Ground. The music we played this hour included... Ultra Black by Nas, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. <laughs>